It is good to be here. I have not been to the well in Allendale since our kickoff because I've been helping launch the well downtown, but I hear we've been having a good party here. Is that true? Yeah! Time? Man. Well, if, uh, if I'm a new face to you, let me just quickly introduce myself. I'm Scott. I'm one of the CM staff. I've been here since 2010. Uh, actually, that was the same year. It was almost eight years ago today. It happened this past Wednesday that my daughter was born. Uh, so she just turned eight on Wednesday. Let me show you a picture of these amazing uh, folks. Maybe, maybe, wait for it. There they are. So that little gem right there. All right, never mind. So the girl's obviously my daughter, right? So uh, she turned eight. I started a new job and, and had a new child in about a month's time. That was a crazy season of life. But uh, this is my wife, Julie, my daughter, Allie, and my son, Max. So uh, they are not here with us tonight, but hopefully you'll get a chance to meet with them sometime in the near future. Very excited to be here with you as we continue to, uh, our journey through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 2 tonight. So if you have your Bible, you might want to open it up to Mark chapter 2. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and one of our friends in the back will bring one for you. So if anybody need a Bible, looks like we are all covered. Ben's still going to walk down just in case. There we go. So we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 2, which I am very excited. Oh, oh, that's okay. No, nope. And we're going to take a look at what is um, one of my favorite characters uh, in, of Scripture. Mark is my guy. Um, I love this dude. Um, we're going to be in chapter 2. If you have one of the blue Bibles, some of you may have it. We're on page 1494. Just, you know, I, the Bible was new to me once, uh, and I knew it was really difficult to walk through. So if the Bible's new to you, it's okay. We have page numbers. That's helpful, right? So it's on 1494 if you're using one of our blue Bibles. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of near the back. But Mark is one of my favorite gospel writers in part because it was one of the first things I read when I was starting to explore Christianity and the Bible, and I was encouraged to read the Gospels, and I looked through them and quickly identified an important fact. Mark was significantly shorter than the rest. So that's where I started. So my intro to Jesus came via the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is one of the reasons I love him so much. Uh, but I also love Mark because he is clearly the most flawed of all the gospel writers. What I mean by that is this. Matthew I absolutely love because Matthew helps me read Jesus in, the, in his context as a Jewish rabbi. So I love Matthew for that. And John I love because John helps me understand the theological depth. I am I'm having a hard time. Can you guys just click for me because I seem to be having a hard time with uh, transitions here. So if you move to the picture there, there he is, Mark. So uh, anyway, John I love because his theological depth of insight into the significance of Jesus' life and ministry is so rich. So I love John, and I love Luke because Luke's a doctor, and so his analysis of the life and times of Jesus is so helpful for us. But Mark I love because Mark shouldn't even be here. He, he's nobody in the scheme of God's plans for the world. There's this guy, let me tell you about Mark. Uh, he has no acclaim in Scripture. In fact, his only kind of moments in that we, we find Mark mentioned in Scripture are when he screwed up so bad. 
So in the very first mission trip that ever happened, so the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the church explodes and starts to grow in all these different places, and we find in Mark chapter um, 15 that Paul and Barnabas are being set apart to go as missionaries to the Gentile world. It's a big event, the very first mission trip. So it's going to be Paul, who is the preacher. There's going to be Barnabas, who's the networker. And then, of all people, Mark gets to go on the first mission trip ever. Dude, you talk about an opportunity. He's going to travel with Paul and Barnabas across the world sharing the gospel. Except didn't work out. Halfway through the journey, Mark ditches, bails out, and goes home. The Apostle Paul was so disappointed in Mark that the next time he and Barnabas were setting up for their second missionary trip, Barnabas said, hey, you know what? Let's give Mark another chance to bring him along. And Paul's like, uh-uh. I'm not bringing him. We can't trust him. That's like the only thing we know about Mark, for the most part, from Scripture. He failed. And yet here we are. And the guy who failed his first time around eventually gets, becomes mentored by the Apostle Peter and eventually starts to write down Peter's sermons and the stories he would tell about Jesus. And then Mark, the last person that you would expect, Mark becomes the writer, the first author of the most important story that's ever been written. I love me some Mark, man. <laughs> so good. Such a good backstory. And having faced this significant public failure and this rejection by an influential leader of the church, eventually they were reconciled, but Paul was not having it with Mark. Not that he didn't care about him as a brother, but he was not bringing him on these trips again. Having faced all of that, Mark becomes this uh, man who so loved Jesus and so wanted everybody to know Jesus that he writes the first writer of the most important story ever written. Isn't that cool? So it was absolutely with pleasure, friends, that uh, I turn with you to hear what Mark tells us about Jesus in the second chapter. We're going to start at verse 23. And I believe if, that, if you're reading out of the Blue Bible, you need to flip the page to find that one. Another thing about the Bible, there's all these little numbers in there. So besides the chapter, there's these little numbers. So 2.23 is what you're looking for. This is what it says. On the Sabbath day, Jesus was going through the grain fields. His disciples, as they walked along, began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Hey, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus asked, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions as well. Then he said this, The Sabbath was made for mankind. Not mankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and there was a man there with a withered hand. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. 
Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus said this, what's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? He looked around at all of them, angry, deeply distressed because of their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand. And it was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The word of our Lord. Quite a story, huh? Two stories, really. The first one, a seemingly unimportant account of Jesus having a conversation about the finer points of Sabbath law with Pharisees as they're on their way to synagogue or on their way out. We don't know. We just know it was on Sabbath. The second story is much more compelling, isn't it? I mean, in this story, we have Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath day that we have this really significant climax, stretch out your hand, and he stretches it out, and it's completely restored, and everybody says, hooray, except there's this kind of ominous sentence afterwards, and the Pharisees went to plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. Dun, dun, dun. Right? Mark is a good writer, man. He sets you up like, oh, wait, what? Why would they do that? Actually, it's a fascinating little thing in the, in the original text. It, says, it doesn't just say kill. You could, there's a word for that, but it doesn't say that. It says how they might destroy Jesus. Right? It wasn't enough to just kill him. They had to destroy him, make him, uh, make him a public disgrace. And the one thing that holds these two stories together, Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but that raises an immediate question for me, especially when I was first reading Mark. What the heck is Sabbath? Anybody else have that wondering? Like, what is this thing called Sabbath that seemed to be so important? Well, actually, Sabbath, I've come to learn, is a huge deal in ancient uh, Israel, in the Old Testament. Sabbath is one of the key marks of what it means to be the people of God. In Exodus, when God is freeing his people from slavery in Egypt, he leads them out through Moses to Mount Horeb, and he gives them a brand new identity. You are no longer Egyptian slaves. You are the chosen people of God, and as God's chosen people, God encoded for them a new way of life that was completely different than their old way of life. He did it through what we call the Ten Commandments. Fascinating thing about that. Commandments 6 through 10, like 
don't lie, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't give false testimony, don't covet things that belong to other people, things you might expect to be in the Ten Commandments. Before God says any of that, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Can you flip for me? Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you will labor and do all your work. The seventh, though, is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, not you, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, not your ox or your donkey, not any of your animals, not any foreigner residing in your town. It's pretty comprehensive. So that your male and female servants can rest as you do. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to observe the Sabbath day. (laughs) This must be really important to God. I mean, before you talk about, again, murder, adultery, coveting, any of those things, this. Does that surprise you? Anybody? Anybody? It surprises me. In terms of world history, Sabbath, as a weekly rhythm of life, shows up completely out of nowhere in this story in Exodus. It's not found in any culture, Eastern or Western, in this kind of a way, uh, and particularly in an affirmative way. But in the Exodus of Israel, God takes people who were slaves, working sunup to sundown, Seven days a week, birth to death. Their lives were the epitome of the phrase that you all know. Life's a bitch and then you die. Come on, we're grown-ups in this room. If you haven't said it, you've heard it. That's their lives. He takes those lives, and he takes those attitudes, and he says to them, you are no longer slaves. Your life matters. And we're going to celebrate that fact every single week of your life. Every seven days, you are going to rest and remember and receive this gift. The Lord your God brought you out of slavery and death, and he gave you life and freedom. So observe that day. Keep it sacred so that you don't forget who you are. You're chosen people. You're precious to God. I think that really helps us make sense of the conflict we encounter in Mark chapter 2. Because I think, would you agree with this? That in, in Western Christianity, contemporary Western Christianity, we have this tendency to disregard the reaction of the Pharisees here, don't we? To just say, what's the big deal? Stop being ridiculous. These silly Pharisees, don't they know that we don't have to follow all those laws anymore? We're free. We can do whatever we want. But it seems like in Scripture, Sabbath is a big deal. Maybe way bigger than we give it credit for. And so what the Pharisees got wrong 
is not the Sabbath is important, but why it's important. See, what they missed is, I think, exactly what Mark wants us to see in this very unimportant little story of Jesus on his way to or from synagogue, walking through the grain field, picking a few heads of grain. Why bother telling us this story? Because we need to hear this. Sabbath is for us. It was made for us. It's a gift from God. It's always been a gift, a time to receive the freedom and life that God has for us, a time to remember who God is and by virtue of that, who we are as his people. And it's a gift of resting in the loving presence of our Father. God, that sounds good, doesn't it? It seems that for the Pharisees, the gift of Sabbath had become an obligation, something they had to do instead of something They get to celebrate. And to make sure that we get this right, that we don't miss the point that he's trying to make in showing us this picture of Jesus, he takes us to the next story. Puts it right up next to it in Mark chapter 3, a story about Jesus, Pharisees, and this man with a withered hand. Interesting, we don't know anything about this guy. In scripture, except for what we're told right here. We don't know what his backstory is. We don't know what his story is going forward. All we know is that at this particular day, at this particular time, he happened to be sitting in the synagogue when Jesus showed up, probably in Capernaum on a Sabbath day, probably sat in the back. I mean, if you're this guy, you don't want to draw attention to yourself. To have a physical defect like this man had would mean to be kind of outside his community in a lot of ways, maybe not completely ostracized, but he can't do a lot of things that other people do, and it means being on, that means being on the outside. It certainly meant being on the outside of the presence of God. A person with a defect like this, according to religious laws of the day, would not be able to enter the temple of God, which is where the presence of God was understood to dwell This man would never enter the presence of God. The closest he could get would be the synagogue, which is kind of like Skyping your girlfriend, right? I mean, it's not the worst thing, but it's not the real thing. So guess what? the guy who could never enter the presence of God. The presence of God came to him. The presence of God, the Lord of the Sabbath, showed up in the synagogue that day, and he brought the gift right with him. And this is the scene. It must have been weird. Right Here's Jesus. Usually when Jesus came to town, it was kind of a big deal. So synagogue was probably packed. It may have been a little bit like this. Synagogue was probably packed out. It's, it's a different structure set up. You don't need to know all that. But uh, it'd be hard to not be noticed in synagogue structure. But here's this guy probably sitting in the back. And in the middle of his sermon, Jesus just says, Sir, excuse me. Yes, you. Would you stand up? Is that feeling a little awkward? Yeah. 
Jesus noticed the man with the withered hand, and right there, dead sermon, asked him to set up, all eyes are now on this fellow and on Jesus, right? You can imagine them like, looking at him, looking at Jesus, looking at him, looking at Jesus. What's about to happen? Jesus looks around, and he's got this angry look on his face, because he can see the hard heart of some of the people that are in the room, wondering, wanting him not to bring life to this man. Jesus knows what happens when he does this. He knows exactly the implications of what he's about to do. Nevertheless, he says to the man, now standing with all eyes on him, what's lawful? Right here on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? Stretch out your hand. And of course, you can only imagine the man nervously beginning to extend his withered hand, but the excitement growing as the nerve endings in his fingers begin to tingle, as his dead hand comes to life and he stretches it out, and it looks like a hand's supposed to look, and it feels like a hand's supposed to feel, and it moves like a hand's supposed to move. The scripture says it is completely restored. My friends, the people in the synagogue in Capernaum that day got a firsthand look at what it means that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what they saw was restoration. What they saw was healing. What they saw was resurrection, life coming out of death. This is what the Lord of the Sabbath comes to bring. It's the reason we gather here every Sunday just as Christians have been doing ever since the earliest days of the church, because we need the Lord of the Sabbath to give us this gift, don't we? We need to receive the freedom and life he has for us. We need to remember all of his promises and all that he says to tell us and remind us of who we are as his people and not all the things that the world tells us about who we are. And we need to rest in the loving embrace of our Father. And so I wonder, are there parts of you that are withered? Things in your life, whether they are physical or emotional or mental, that make it so that you don't believe the gift of God's presence and restoration are for you. Things that make you feel like somehow you have to stay outside of God's presence, the way Krista described earlier. The Lord of the Sabbath says to you, stretch out your hand. That's it. Just stretch out your hand before him. Whatever parts of you that are withered, the parts of you that give you shame, the parts of you that make you feel vulnerable, Stretch out your hand and receive the gift of freedom and life that the Lord of the Sabbath has to give us.
Tonight we're going to stretch out our hands to Jesus in a very specific and tangible way by receiving Holy Communion together. And in a moment, Ben is going to come up and he's going to lead us to the table of the Lord and give us some instruction about what that looks like here and the way we do that with so many people and folks sitting on the floor and in the aisles. And we, we know that there are lots of different traditions and different uh, uh, ways of doing this that, we, that are represented in this room tonight. One of the things we love about being in this community is we are an, uh, an interdenominational community. There are a whole bunch of different communities represented in this community. We love that, and we embrace that. And so we have no disrespect and no disregard for anybody else's tradition. But here, communion is a Sabbath gift. We come to the Lord of the Sabbath, not because we're clean, but because we need him to clean us. And we come not because we're whole, but because we need him to make us whole. And so don't come here because you deserve it. And don't stay away because you think you don't. Come because we need everything from him. So don't let your past or your present state of witheredness keep you from coming to the Lord of the Sabbath tonight with your hands outstretched so that you can receive the gift he has for you tonight. Would you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, you alone are Lord of heaven and earth, and you are also the Lord of rest. It is a baffling and mysterious and glorious thing that you give to us this rhythm of life that includes resting in you, remembering your promises and receiving your gifts. And so for those of us tonight, God, that have withered parts of us that are in desperate need of your healing, we pray, speak words of power over those places in our lives, God, to bring your restoring rest into those pieces of our lives. And we pray too, Jesus, for those of us that uh, struggle more with um, feeling the obligation that we have to get this right. We have to do it right so that God will bless us the way a Pharisees do. I know, God, that's confession that I struggle with. And you know that. And so I come too, Lord, confessing. I need you. We need you to convert our hearts so that we receive the gift you have for us too. In all of this, Jesus, we pray. Heal the withered parts of our lives so that we can, with this man, can be a demonstration of your glorious power and grace to the world around us. We pray this in your powerful name. Amen.